represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. To become more efficient, government needs to reach the point where sharing or merging functions is routine. Recent fiscal pressures, cyber vulnerabilities, rising customer expectations, and the need to deliver IT solutions more efficiently provide significant incentives for federal agencies to share services government-wide. Good government shared services initiatives have the potential to realize annual savings of over $50 billion in government administrative costs and substantial improvements in services, employee morale, and government mission performance. While agency adoption of shared services has proven to be an arduous task, much has been accomplished with more to be done. How has the U.S. Department of the Interior used shared services? What are some of the critical challenges facing the application and use of shared services across the U.S. federal government? And what are the most effective ways to maintaining momentum on shared services across presidential administrations? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Scott Cameron, former Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy, Management and Budget at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Scott, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, Mike. Really glad to be here. You know, just for some context, I would like to know, what is the mission of the U.S. Department of the Interior? The mission is incredibly broad, Michael. Interior has 11 bureaus. We do everything from um, running the national parks to providing hydroelectric energy and water in the Western states to being a social services agency for, uh, for American Indians. So Scott, what are the key duties of the Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy Management and Budget within Interior? I was responsible for all the management functions across Interior. So I was Chief Financial Officer, Chief Acquisition Officer, the Chief Human Capital Officer reported to me. I was Chief Financial Assistance uh, Officer and had a very tight relationship with the department's CIO. In addition, uh, there were quite a few other uh, ancillary functions associated with, with that role. Frankly, in most departments, uh, there would be two Senate-confirmed politicals uh, with the sc- scope of responsibilities, an assistant secretary for administration and a CFO. But interior, it's all wrapped up in one job. Interesting. Good to know the context. So as you reflect, what were some of the key challenges you faced in that role? Well, because Interior has so many bureaus, many of which have a history that's more than a century uh, long, integration across the department is always a challenge. Bureaus tend to be rather independent and they like it that way. And yet um, there are real benefits from taking enterprise shared services approach and uh, communicating that to the bureaus 
and engaging them and securing their cooperation is, uh, is always a challenge. What had surprised you most during your time at Interior? What surprised me most is the fact that the, the same issues that uh, we were dealing with in the early 2000s and indeed at the very beginning of my career, quite some time before that, kept on coming up again. Uh, they had somewhat different faces to them, uh, that technological issues were, were different, uh, more evolved, but fundamentally, uh, it's a question about how do you get information, how do you manage, how do you operate efficiently and effectively? And that team, that theme or those themes uh, continued on. And Scott, what was the most enriching or exciting part of your time with the department? On the management side, uh, the most rewarding uh, work that I've been able to participate in is work with some really bright people in our human resources function to uh, help our employees get a sense of what a career path might look like at DOI. We launched my DOI career uh, a couple of years ago. And the notion here is to be able to explain uh, to uh, relatively new employees at Interior, but also potential applicants for positions at Interior, what a career might look like over a 5, 10, 20, or, or more a year time frame um, at, at the department. It's a great recruiting tool. It's also a great retention tool because we can give people a sense of what their future might look like at DOI and the many different options that are available to them and the opportunity to, to change uh, a career trajectory and change bureaus and still be part of the Interior Department family. So Scott, would you tell us more about yourself and your career path? So uh, my, my background has been fairly unusual. I started off as a presidential management intern, career civil servant uh, in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, many years ago. Um, had a rotational assignment on Capitol Hill, loved it. Uh, ended up working on Capitol Hill for a few years, but I also um, worked uh, at the Office of Management and Budget where I developed, I suppose, my reputation as a budget nerd. I was at OMB for, for seven years. Great institution, wonderful people, uh, uh, terribly underappreciated and, uh, and unrecognized across the federal government. But I also worked for a state. I worked for the, uh, the state of California on natural resource issues here in Washington. I worked in the, the private sector uh, as well, doing corporate government uh, relations. I set up a nonprofit uh, to deal with invasive species issues around the country. And I, um, probably because of my budget background, um, I became an, an attractive candidate in the Bush administration to, to help with budget and other administrative functions at, at, at DOI. And quite a few years later, um, because of my prior experience uh, during the Bush administration at Interior, I was invited to, uh, to come back to Interior again um, as, a, as a political and to work on all these uh, management issues that are, are, are so significant. And you know, given your background, Scott, in the private sector, in the uh, nonprofit sector, and, and with the federal government, what characteristics make one an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of the leadership principles that guide your efforts. I think the characteristics of an effective leader are fairly 
consistent across sectors, actually, public sector, private sector, nonprofit sector. You need to be able to identify and hire good people. You need to be able to establish clear goals. You need to be sensitive to uh, critical um, points of inflection, if you will, in the progress on a project so that you can appropriately uh, intervene. You need to be able to support uh, your staff with your time and to the extent you can uh, with money uh, to, to help them succeed. I think you also need to demonstrate a, a genuine interest in the uh, career ad advancement of the, uh, the, the the people who work for you. Uh, I learned fairly uh, early on in my career the, 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 the hard way that um, it's better to help uh, your subordinates uh, advance, even if it means uh, allowing them to leave the organization than to try to keep them uh, where they are and, uh, and, and take advantage of their skills rather than allowing them to share their skills more generally. How has the U.S. Department of the Interior used shared services? I will ask Scott Cameron, former Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy Management and Budget at the U.S. Department of the Interior, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. How can performance management systems help government perform better? What more needs to be done? Today, I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Professor Praja Trivedi, author of Performance Management in Government, a primer for leaders. So, Praja, on its face, the task of improving government performance um, looks daunting. Uh, but you point out there are three key facts that uh, need to be kept in mind. What are those? Well, it's really when you look around and you close your eyes, Michael, you feel that uh, all the governments are conspiring to tell you the same story. And they'll say we are unique and we are different. But when they relate their challenges and their problems, they look similar. So in a sense, the first thing I've noticed is that many of the problems involved in managing government across countries are a result of a few underlying causes. So it's not like everyone has a unique problem. You know, they say it in a unique way. They may not say in exact words, but they're basically repeating the same problems which you observe across the countries. The second is that even the causes of poor performance are uh, similar. And third, of course, the solutions are very similar, too. You find that countries that have really solved and overcome these challenges are using basically similar approaches. So there's a great deal of similarity, even though we may speak different languages, our GDPs are different, we are in different regions of the world, but th there is a huge amount of similarity. similarity. So I have decided to focus on those similarities, mm -hmm. in both in identifying the uh, problems and as well as finding solutions. In your experience, what keeps government from being as effective as it can be or should be. And what are the typical causes of poor government performance? So government departments 
have too many people supervising them. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels they have a right to supervise the government department, whether it's the parliament, whether it is the uh, controller and auditor general, whether it is the administrative ministries, the regulators, the press even feels they have a right to supervise the government department and the vigilance agencies. So now that should not be a problem because after all, in the private sector, you have thousands of shareholders who also supervise the firm. That the difference between the public and the private sector is, whereas in the private sector, they all have the same objective. All the shareholders are focused on just increasing their share value and making sure the company does well, not only in the short run, but in the long run. In the public sector, unfortunately, everyone has a different objective. Somebody wants political objectives to be met. Someone wants non-political objectives. Somebody wants efficiency. Somebody wants equity. And as a result, the government officials really do not know what is really expected of them. Mm -hmm. If they run fast, they are told, look, this is not a dash, it's a marathon, take it easy. Mm -hmm. If they jump high, they are told, look, this is not a high jump, it's a broad <laughs> jump. And so they decide, look, I'm just going to follow the rules, survive in the system, and if there is a collateral benefit to the country, then so be it. But I'm not going to go out and try, and that's not desirable. So that's cause that you can be sure you find, that fuzziness of goals and objectives. The other problem that you see all the time is the not-me syndrome. <laughs> you know, where anything happens, they'll say, it's not me, it's someone else is doing it, it's not me. So in the government, it's always pointing the fingers. Mm -hmm. So these are the two big problems, and you find most of the problems, if you mention to me, they will be symptoms of these two underlying causes. How do you define performance, or how have you? And more importantly, how can a government executive who is pursuing the same thing you've done, um, but in a different context, uh, how can it ensure that performance man management is more than, say, performance measurement? Performance, uh, the word could mean many things. There is ex-ante performance, which is I give you uh, an objective and then I hold you to account. The other is that I come back as an auditor and say, look, Michael, I don't know what your objectives were. You, you know, you were building a road. This road ain't good enough, right? You may say, look, I was only given this money and I was told to finish in uh, half the time and therefore this road is the best possible. I say, no. So that is exposed evaluation, where I come back as a researcher. I don't talk to you. What were your constraints? I said, this road should have been like this. And then they could be partial. Then lots of people go and say, well, I'm going to look at skill development. Well, that's a partial indicator of a ministry of labor, which does a lot of other things. And you say, I'm going to look only at that. So that's like saying, you know, you focus in one particular area. You might get something done there but the inefficiency travels to the other oh, parts yeah. of the organization. So that's as opposed to a comprehensive approach. So you can have a comprehensive approach. So you can also have an approach which focuses on the performance of the manager versus an approach which focuses on the performance of the organization. Very different things. So managerial performance is really organizational performance adjusted for force majeure and exogenous circumstances. That's So there are a variety of performance. So my definition, which is the working definition, and that's why it has succeeded, is simply the difference between the promises you make at government department and the delivery. That's performance. Mm -hmm. 
whatever you say. Mm-hmm. I didn't force you to say it, but you said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. At the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, we simply ask, sir, what have you done compared to the promises you made? The difference between rhetoric and action is really the true measure of performance, in my view. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Scott Cameron, former Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy, Management, and Budget at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Scott, would you give us a brief history of shared services at the Department of the Interior? Absolutely, Michael. So Interior's oldest shared services organization is what was our National Business Center, uh, which is several decades old at this point. We christened the Interior uh, uh, Business Center uh, in in the last decade or so. It's been a payroll provider uh, for a long time during for multiple federal agencies. Uh, During the Bush administration, OMB designated it as one of the four uh, payroll shared service providers uh, government-wide, but the Interior Business Center is also a shared um, service provider for the financial management uh, line of business. It also operates an acquisition franchise fund that provides procurement support for a wide variety of, of agencies. Beyond the Interior Business Center, uh, an important area of shared services at DUI involves our CIO operation. Initially under Claire Cohen and then more recently under Fatara, we've been increasingly pushing for enterprise solutions, taking enterprise approach where the, the, the bureaus are serviced centrally through the departmental CIO. In the uh, HR uh, arena, shared services have grown up organically. A number of our bureaus have made efforts uh, internally to consolidate uh, servicing human resources offices, for instance. Uh, National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management have done that to varying degrees. We've more recently been promoting the use of shared certificates, which is another variation on shared services, so that one bureau may do a vacancy announcement, but managers and other bureaus could hire uh, off of uh, those certificates. We've been putting a lot of effort into a standard position descriptions at DOI, which of course also facilitates um, uh, shared services. In the acquisition front, um, we have uh, 
been developing uh, centrally the capacity to buy personal protective equipment during COVID-19. So we can take advantage of uh, IBC's uh, leverage in the marketplace and, uh, and, and get volume discounts. We've also uh, moved ahead closely with the CIO to uh, consolidate our technology purchases. A year ago, Interior's inventory of IT involved more than 100 models of laptops, desktops, and, and tablets. Uh, we are now, over the next several months, moving to 14 or 15 uh, models. That will save us an enormous amount of, of money on um, IT support, uh, as well as getting us volume discounts. And also Interior used to have more than a thousand uh, Amazon contracts. We now have one Amazon uh, contracts. But probably the most exciting area has been in financial assistance. Interior has hundreds of grant programs. Uh, all were managed very differently uh, with different sorts of processes. In calendar 2020, we deployed the HHS grant solutions capability across the entire department. So now for the first time, the Secretary of the Interior can understand where her four to $5 billion of grant money is actually going and, uh, and help steer that money to achieve objectives of the administration. It's interesting. It's a great context. And so now I want to understand what are some of the drivers uh, around shared services? Could you elaborate on those? I think the most important driver, and this is consistent across uh, administrations and probably will be for decades on end, is that the need to save money, uh, particularly to save money for mission, to take costs out of the administrative functions, to free up cash, therefore, that you can uh, invest in uh, client-facing customer facing mission areas. The caveat on that is that managers and the agencies need to be confident that neither the departmental CFO nor the Office of Management and Budget are going to take away those savings and uh, prevent them from reinvesting. Another driver in the technology arena in particular is the increasingly serious need to reduce cybersecurity risks. Uh, shared services allow you to monitor fewer and better protected systems. Uh, similarly, uh, supply chain uh, risk management is a driver for shared services. The fewer different ways you are acquiring um, a product, uh, the easier it is to, to manage those supply chains and be confident that what you're getting is what you really need. Uh, more broadly, uh, simply the ability to simplify management. Um, every senior executive in the, set, in the federal government has got dozens of demands on their time uh, every day of the week. Being able to juggle fewer balls, focus on, on fewer activities or programs or procurements is a, is a real benefit. It can free up hours a, a week of an SES's time. Uh, for those agencies that have franchise funds, the, I'll use the word profits, although our lawyers would probably get very anxious at the use of use the word profit in the context of a franchise fund. But the, the profits that are generated uh, as a result of a franchise fund can be reinvested in the technology infrastructure uh, of the agency. And that's really valuable. 
finally, uh, the shared service driver of OMB told us to do it is always out there. That's probably you know the, the least compelling of all the drivers, but um, um, OMB always has to be reckoned with. And um, it's good to have OMB as an external uh, a driver, uh, but the internal drivers, I think ultimately are the most important. Uh, So, Scott, from drivers to risk, would you tell us more about the risks associated with pursuing shared services? There are several. Uh, I think um, in no particular order of importance, they would include biting off more than you can chew, trying to take on uh, too aggressive uh, a a task or a project and not having the capability ultimately to deliver. But... um, even if you've got the, the technical ability to uh, deliver shared services, neglecting change management is a constant problem. It's like throwing a party and no one comes. Uh, it's really important from the very beginning of, of a project, not just after the fact when something is delivered and out there, to engage with the stakeholders and uh, make sure that they are on board and make sure that they understand the benefits of transitioning to assured services. Similarly, uh, neglecting business process reengineering, uh, I, I think, is a risk. Simply automating defective paper-based processes uh, doesn't get you very much. So shared services offer the opportunity to change the way we've been doing things from a process standpoint, um, not just from a technology standpoint, and that's really uh, important. Another risk is uh, not defining the the, the problem correctly, Um, avoiding the scenario where you uh, create a, a solution in search of a problem. It needs to be the other way around. You need to understand what the problem is or what the challenge is or what the need is, and then design the technology, design the system around the problem. And then there are the classic um, you know, project management challenges of under-resourcing a project, cost overruns, schedule slippage, and quality control. And I'd like to get a sense, Scott, of um, what have been some of the key principles uh, and shared services goals that have informed your efforts while you were at Interior? Well, we clearly um, wanted to wanted to save money. We wanted to reduce risks. We wanted to give better and more useful information to the career and the political leadership um, uh, of the department. Um, and uh, we wanted to make an interior a, a better place to work, a more a- appealing place to work where uh, employees could spend relatively more of their time on what they love to do and relatively less of their time on the administrative stuff that they needed to do but weren't getting much job satisfaction from. So Scott, what has been done at Interior regarding HR shared services? Okay, we have over the last year, we have uh, created a working on an interbureau basis dozens of uh, standard position descriptions in a wide variety of functional areas across the department. And uh, we're on track at at Interior to uh, do even more of uh, of that in uh, in the coming year. 
Um, another thing that we've been doing is really promoting uh, shared certificates. So for instance, in a particular geographic area, if one of our bureaus needs to uh, hire um, a procurement specialist uh, and sometime over the next several months, uh, it's obvious that other bureaus want to hire uh, someone in a similar role. We've gotten uh, individual bureaus to step up and say, okay, we will handle the, the vacancy announcement uh, for uh, all of our sister bureaus in the region, and then managers can draw off of the same uh, shared certificate. Um, at, at this point, um, we, Interior, has uh, advertised uh, several dozen um, um, positions uh, using shared uh, certificates. So that's a that's another example of uh, of what we've done in uh, in, in the HR arena. We've also standardized our policies. Each of our bureaus, predictably, over the last 150 years, had developed its own HR policies, and sometimes uh, they were inconsistent. Sometimes they were uh, outdated. Um, and if you're going to promote shared services, people need to be operating under the same processes, they uh, they need to be offering the same policies, they uh, need to be using the same forms, if you will. So our consolidation of, uh, of HR policies uh, across Interior uh, has been uh, something else uh, that I think has been uh, important. But more generally, in the career pathing world, we want to open up vistas for our employees. We want them to understand that uh, they can move outside of their current chain of command. They can potentially get a job uh, in another bureau uh, at, at Interior and to give them a vision of the multiple ways they could chart a career over time and still be part of the interior department family. Over the last four years, how has shared services expanded in the acquisition functions of interior and its bureaus? Okay. Uh, one of the things that we've done that's really interesting is we're using uh, bots, uh, robotic process automation. Now, um, one of the things contracting officers don't enjoy enjoy doing very much is contract closeout. Uh, most of the fun as a, as a contracting officer is helping a, um, a, a customer uh, find uh, a vendor who can provide services and then administering the contract. Contract closeout on the back end is not a particularly rewarding activity for contracting officers. So we are using bots to do a lot uh, of the what I would have called paperwork in terms of contract closeout, but a, a lot of the uh, work that uh, doesn't require much expertise, but mechanically simply needs to get done. So that's that's one thing uh, that we're doing, using BOSS to facilitate contract closeout, and that frees up money, uh, substantial amounts of money. Um, for instance, the first version of our bot over the last uh, several months uh, helped uh, close out 1,500 uh, contracts um, across DOI um, and enabled us to deobligate almost $4 million of money in contracts that maybe had a few hundred to a few tens of thousands of dollars sitting uh, uh, in them. And that money obviously can be, uh, can be reinvested 
in, uh, in the agency. So we've been really excited about the prospects for bots and, and version 2.0 of the bots, I think is gonna help the, the contracting community at, at DOI um, even, even more. Uh, Interior used to have 10,000 Amazon accounts. Uh, we now have one Amazon account with free shipping and no tax, uh, no sales tax uh, for our uh, 16,000 or so um, uh, Amazon account users uh, uh, across DOI. So we're, we're really uh, pleased about, uh, about that. Um, it also gives us much more visibility into what people are actually buying um, and that in turn um, makes uh, category purchasing um, uh, easier uh, to accomplish. It allows us to be more strategic and it pays the way for uh, more enterprise contracts um, uh, across uh, DOI, which uh, will again end up, uh, end up saving money uh, over time. Uh, we've also uh, put a good deal of effort into standardizing the, the contracting forms uh, that uh, our various bureaus use. You'd think if anything was standardized in the federal government, it would be procurement. Turns out uh, not necessarily uh, the, 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 the case. So at Interior, we created a centralized toolkit for forms, uh, an electronic library, if you will, of acquisition templates that our, our bureaus are, are now using. And that saves a, a lot of time. Um, and it also, again, opens up the possibility of a contracting office in one bureau being able to help out a contracting office in another bureau that may be temporarily overwhelmed uh, because, of, because of workload. So. Uh, that's something else that we're, we're quite uh, pleased about. And I already mentioned the, the fact that we are now going to 15 models of desktops, laptops, and tablets from the uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of models uh, that we've previously uh, uh, used at, at Interior. So similarly, Scott, how has a shared services model applied in the financial assistance function of the department and its components? And where I'm going is like the grant management stuff. Okay. So Interior spends between 4 and $5 billion a year on financial assistance in the form of uh, formula grants, uh, block grants, competitive grants. The amount, of course, varies depending upon the generosity of the appropriations committees. Um, but that money has historically been processed in very different ways across of our 11 bureaus. And um, um, early in, in, in 2017, the, the, the secretary asked, so where is 40% of my budget going? And uh, what is it being spent on? And the reality is we we couldn't answer uh, that question uh, essentially because we would have had to done a data call of the uh, dozens of, of grant programs uh, across uh, the department and it would have taken several weeks to answer what would seem on the surface to be a fairly simple straightforward question. If um, incoming Secretary Deb Holland uh, were to ask that same question right now, uh, we could give her an answer in a couple of hours because uh, we deployed in calendar 2020 the grant solutions 
um, tool that uh, HHS has been providing as a shared service for, uh, for a number of years. And as a result of that, we have done some business process re-engineering in our financial assistance programs uh, across the department. And uh, we've automated to the point where we have much more transparency and much more accountability uh, in our financial assistance activity. And that's really important at DNY because like I said, it's about 40% uh, more or less of our uh, appropriated dollars um, go out the door in, in terms of uh, financial assistance. Uh, it also means that applicants uh, can apply more easily uh, online and upload uh, deliverables. There's less paperwork involved uh, on the part of the uh, grant recipients. So we think that not only does this mean we have greater transparency and accountability, it means we can provide better information uh, to the career SESers and the political appointees at Interior who are managing or are responsible for our financial assistance programs. And ultimately, uh, we can show the Congress and GAO and OMB uh, much more easily what we're doing uh, with, uh, with, with the money that we have for financial assistance. What are the most effective ways to maintaining momentum on shared services initiatives during a presidential transition? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Scott Cameron, former Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy, Management, and Budget at the U.S. Department of the Interior. So, Scott, regarding the shared services and the initiatives that have been pursued as part of a good government approach, why are all the risks more significant when the new president is of a different party than the former president? So, and I, I think it's important to note that in my uh, experience in, in, in Washington, this is a pattern that you've seen um, time and time again, regardless of the individual personalities in the White House, you know, regardless of, of, of which party is taking over and which party is leaving. But uh, I think there's a natural, if I, unfortunate a tendency to assume that uh, whatever the previous team was trying to do was probably bad 
and then we ought to, therefore, we ought to stop doing it uh, because if they liked it, then it must be bad. Uh, I think there's also a period of relationship building that often is kind of awkward between the career civil servant leadership in the agencies um, and the new political leadership. Um, particularly if a new political leadership is new to Washington or new to the executive branch, uh, there sometimes is an unfortunate uh, view that uh, the career civil servants uh, were loyalists of the old regime and therefore I, I can't trust them. So it often will, will take us months to uh, build a relationship uh, between the career civil service uh, leadership of the agency, most of whom just want to know what the political leadership want them to do and are quite happy to do it, um, and, uh, and the new political leadership. There's also the very practical problem of uh, it often can take months to get the, the new leadership uh, political leadership of, a, of an agency nominated, confirmed, and then up to speed. So there is a, a, a perennial uh, challenge of, of, of learning curve and potentially uh, losing momentum um, in the, the time it takes for the new political uh, uh, leadership to understand their jobs and uh, understand what, what, what's going on. There are also you know, institutional uh, challenges uh, that uh, one uh, often has, uh, particularly for new political leadership that may be new to Washington. Uh, they may not understand the role of the Office of Management and Budget and why they need to pay attention to OMB. They may not uh, appreciate the role of the Appropriations Committees um, and uh, may pay inadequate attention to the appropriators. They may not understand uh, the, the federal hiring process and uh, the fact that one simply can't hire a friend or, or hire a relative because um, of, of pre-existing relationships. They may not understand the federal acquisition regulation and all the procurement rules um, that federal agencies have to have to um, live by, and they may not understand the complex uh, interrelationships uh, in, in, in federal agencies. They may feel that um, the, the president has asked them to do something, and that means they can just go do it and uh, not realize uh, all the stakeholders who uh, may have a legitimate role in, uh, and expectations about being engaged. Uh, on whatever project uh, that they're interested in pursuing. So Scott, what are the most effective ways to maintaining momentum on shared services during a transition? Okay, well, there are, I think, a number of considerations. Uh, one certainly is, is branding. If I was a career SESer uh, in an agency and I was uh, involved in shared services, I'd be looking to see uh, how what uh, I am doing in the shared services arena um, links up with uh, uh, President Biden's uh, uh, campaign rhetoric or campaign promises. I'd be looking to see how the head of my uh, new agency uh, ha has expressed an interest, if any, in, in shared services. 
substances, or more broadly, uh, what's that person's uh, record, whether it's voting record or, or, or uh, career accomplishments. And I'd look for ways to put in the context uh, what I'm doing on shared services uh, with what my new agency head has described as being important to him or her. Also, um, there will be a, a most likely a new president's management agenda. So I would look for ways to um, brand what uh, my agency is doing in the shared services arena uh, so that it's consistent with the, the, the new president's uh, management agenda. Uh, I think it's also very likely that the new political leadership is going to be uh, wanting to pursue a, a number of new ideas and new initiatives, but we haven't enacted FY21 appropriations bill already, right? And we're just in the process of over the next several months of the, the president and OMB coming up with an FY22 budget request. So for FY21, the uh, eight months that are left, that means you have to fund any new ideas out of uh, existing resources. So perhaps shared services is a way to free up cash uh, so the agency head can find uh, new money to, uh, to invest in um, uh, the, the, the new priorities of the administration. So Scott, during your time at Interior, how did you engage with industry to be successful? We um, we tried uh, to use um, RFIs. We tried to use uh, industry days from time to time. One of the advantages, I guess, uh, that I had having spent a decade in management consulting, uh, as, as well as you know, more than 20 years uh, as a government employee, is uh, I, I gradually learned how not to write an RFP, how not how not to write a statement of work, uh, and uh, to help shape the uh, procurement process from the government's end, so that the vendor community could understand what the government wanted, and uh, give the government therefore a technical approach and and pricing that uh, really uh, hit the target. So um, I think it's really important to have as much open communication as possible uh, between the, the, the contractor community and, and the government. Um, and the way to do that, of course, is before the RFP goes out on, on, on the street. So uh, one of the things we did in the CAP goal uh, sub-team on reskilling and redeploying the, the workforce was to have uh, a very long industry day to invite industry to come in and uh, engage uh, with us on an interdepartmental basis in a, a discussion about what tools um, they had or were contemplating a building uh, for reskilling and redeploying the workforce and, and, and career pathing. And that was a very fruitful, a very uh, rich discussion that helped the government better understand what it wanted and uh, help the government understand the capabilities of the private sector. And the, the flip side of the relationship the uh, the private sector could get better insight into what the potential market opportunities really were rather than you know shooting in the dark really important insights so 
What are some of the critical challenges, Scott, facing the application and use of shared services across the federal government? Well, certainly one of them is money. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, what are things going to cost? Where is the money going to come from? When do you need it? Um, and, uh, and, and, and how do you manage it? Um, but another one is, is, is readiness, if you will, uh, for shared services. Uh, I think there's something of a maturity model in, 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 of shared services, particularly for large complex uh, departments with multiple components. Um, I think uh, un until uh, an organization is ready uh, at the bureau level or the component level uh, for shared services and actually has demonstrated some progress, uh, whether it's you know, reducing the number of its own uh, servicing human resources offices or, uh, or reducing the number of procurement offices and um, having uh, shared services at a bureau level. Before an agency, I think, is ready to go to shared services department-wide, there needs to be a philosophical acceptance, if you will, of the concept, and you first see that at, at the bureau level. So if you see bureau-level application of shared services, then I think the next step is entertaining a discussion uh, between the bureaus about shared services uh, at a department-wide level. And then finally, uh, the, the last step, uh, once you have a, a number of departments that have adopted shared services uh, internally at the enterprise level, you can have meaningful discussions about interdepartmental um, uh, shared services. Um, it's a, a major change management and, and business process reengineering and uh, financial management uh, challenge, but the benefits are, are, are substantial. Um, and uh, definitely, uh, I, I think, uh, points us toward a, a future for shared services um, across the federal government. Okay, great. So what are some of the ways to improve the use and application of shared services within Interior and across the federal government enterprise? I think it's important to come up with uh, a plan that has broad acceptance uh, in, in whatever area of shared services. Um, uh, one is trying to pursue. Um, it can't be imposed uh, on the, uh, uh, from the top. As fond as I am of, of my old friends at OMB, uh, OMB's ability to force uh, shared services, successful shared services, is, is very limited. So there needs to be um, a demand, if you will, um, from the bottom up, coupled with strong encouragement um, from uh, from OMB, I think it's really important to take uh, an agile as opposed to a waterfall approach to be able to, uh, from a technology standpoint, to be able to show quick and uh, and easy and incremental wins, um, so that there's positive feedback, if you will, uh, to the to, to the stakeholders. Um, and it's important to you know, bring the, the, the Congress along uh, every step of the way and to uh, engage with good government groups uh, like the National Academy of Public Administration, the Partnership for Public Service, and others um, in the you know, exploration of, uh, of how to do shared services 
uh, intelligently across the, the the government and there needs to be uh you know to to borrow um some concepts from the the advertising world there needs to be a fairly continual drumbeat <laughs> about shared services you can't assume that because you sent out one memo or made one speech at one point in time that everybody has either gotten the message or everybody has adopted or or embraced uh the the, the message so uh, OMB, particularly the uh, deputy director for management, is in a really good position to um, keep the message out there uh, re repeatedly. I think it's also important uh, as part of the uh, developing a groundswell for shared services to engage the various CXO councils. You know, what, uh, what do the CFOs as a group uh, want to do in shared services and the CIOs and the CAOs um, uh, and uh, how can uh, OMB capitalize on that interest and, and, and that energy and, um, and leverage uh, the, the, the expertise and the enthusiasm of the professionals in the acquisition, HR, uh, uh, IT, and financial management communities. That's important insight. So, Scott, how do you see the shared services ecosystem evolving with the new administration? Well, that's very hard to tell um, <laughs> at, at this point. Uh, I think we'll have some really good glimmerings over the next three or four months uh, in terms of uh, what is the OMB director um, have to say on this topic. Um, does the vice president carve out a, a role for herself uh, in, in, in terms of management uh, issues uh, across Interior? Every vice president has, uh, well, not every, most vice presidents have uh, latched onto several initiatives that they want to champion with the president's support. So it'll be interesting to see if, if, if Vice President uh, Harris has any interest in uh, the, the management arena across the federal government. And of course, um, the, the deputy director for management, uh, what, uh, what priorities uh, come out of that operation uh, at OMB. So I'm hopeful that over the next three to four months, we will get some um, signals, if not a, a clear uh, you know, sense, of, uh, a sense of direction uh, about the, the, the future of management improvements and shared services during the Biden administration. So Scott, as we end our conversation, are there any other accomplishments or successes you would like to highlight? Uh, there was a lot going on. <laughs> um, I really, what I really want to do though, is give credit to the career SES leadership um, uh, at, at the department. Uh, as a practical matter, the, uh, the political leadership uh, of an agency can provide resources, but you know the reality is that the real work, the you know the important work, is done by the career SES uh, leadership at the department. So folks like Bill Vida, our, our, our CIO, uh, Megan Olson, our senior procurement executive, Ray Lamone, our, our chief human capital uh, officer, uh, Tonya Johnson, the deputy CFO. Uh, those are the, the, the people who you know, really uh, make things happen and uh, really uh, drive a, a progress 
um, across the department. So without the career SESers, government wouldn't work. And I want to acknowledge uh, their importance. So before we go, Scott, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I would say that you're not going to get rich, but the opportunities for uh, making a difference uh, about things that you may care deeply about on, on a personal level, uh, that can be incredibly uh, rewarding. And um, the opportunity to, to, to serve the, the American people and uh, to, to make uh, an impact in the federal government, which is such a, a large fraction of the American economy and provide such incredibly important services as we you know, learned, especially uh, during this pandemic, um, can be a, a really uh, re rewarding uh, experience. I'd also encourage them to uh, not just look at uh, a particular job or particularly vacant, vacancy announcement, if you will, but to try to get some insight into um, the, the, the management style and the personality of the people, the per, actual human beings that they might be working for in, in the federal government. Because having the a right boss who is in, encouraging, who's supportive, uh, can make all the difference between a mediocre experience and a really wonderful um, experience, not just in the federal government, but but more generally. So try to pick your boss, not just pick your job. That's great, Scott. I want to thank you for joining us today. More importantly, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thanks, uh, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your, your listeners uh, t today. And uh, I know there are a lot of great things that are going to be going on at Interior over the next four years. And I hope you'll, uh, you'll keep an eye on them and uh, look forward to some future interaction with you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Scott Cameron, former Acting Assistant Secretary for Policy Management and Budget at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.